Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. We know that recessions are inevitable. They can be caused by any number of forces such as financial market crashes, cuts to consumer spending, or shifting oil prices. Eventually, an economy stops expanding and begins to contract. But what if lawmakers could pass stimulus legislation today that would automatically kick in when some of the early signs of a slowdown start to appear? Before unemployment and GDP growth plummet, stimulus that cuts the recession off at its knees so it's shorter and more shallow. This is Alpha Chat, a project from the Financial Times and the Rhodes Centre for International Economics and Finance at Brown University. I'm Isabella Kaminska. Economist and FT contributor Megan Green recently spoke to Jay Shambao about how ready the US economy is to fight the next recession. Jay is a professor of economics and international affairs at George Washington University in DC and a senior economics fellow at the Brookings Institution. He recently led teams at the Hamilton Project and the Washington Center for Equitable Growth in compiling a book called Recession Ready. Jay is a big proponent of so-called automatic fiscal stabilizers. He started off by telling Megan about the government response to the Great Recession when he was a senior economic advisor to the Obama administration. Here's Jay. So I think one thing to think of is just that the Great Recession started in December of 2007. And there were some very early kind of moves to to send checks out to people, if people remember, kind of in, in early 2008. But the really big fiscal response uh, was was ARA, the uh, American Recovery and Reinvestment Act, or kind of what people think of as the Stimulus Act. And that didn't actually come until late February of 2008. So it's well over a year after the recession has started that we finally get kind of a big discretionary fiscal push where Congress says, hey, this is a problem. We need something new. And you know, the reason it was so delayed is pretty obvious when you think of U.S. politics, which is once it becomes clear the recession's there, you have a lame duck president with only a few months left, then you have an election, and then you have a new president who's not actually in yet. So it's not like you can pass something new in December of 2008. So finally, you get a new president and you get a big discretionary push. And so that bill included tax tax cuts, it included aid to states, it included uh, money for transportation spending, all sorts of things to try to push money into the economy, either through lowering taxes or spending the money or just giving money to individuals or states. But that was what we'd think of as a discretionary policy. There were also automatic policies going on. You know, you had things like SNAP or what used to be called food stamps. More people are eligible once more people are losing their jobs. And so you're spending more money there, more money through unemployment insurance, things like that. But um, I think the Great Recession really did highlight the challenge of getting the timing right, uh, because if the business cycle j- doesn't just happen to conveniently coincide with our political cycles, it can be hard to get things right. Surely both Democrats and Republicans at the time wanted to respond to a massive recession. Is it just that we didn't know how big the recession was or just that the political process was so incredibly gummed up um, going into an election? It was impossible to agree on anything, even if it was in everybody's best interest. So I think it's twofold there. I think you're right. Part of it is early on, it's just hard to say how bad things are. So, you know, they did cut those initial stimulus checks in 2008. 
but then at that point, I think um, it really did turn into the second point you're making, which is just the politics. There's no way you're going to have, with everyone running for office, with the president on his way out, with a new president coming in, you're not going to have a big stimulus passed. It just, I don't think, I think everyone acknowledged that was going to be something the next administration would do. And so that just meant you lose you know, a number of months, even half a year from when maybe you could have done something. And so um, I agree, everybody thinks maybe you should do something. But the other thing that then kicks in is not everyone agrees how to do it, right? So both sides might say we should do something, but you might have one side saying, let's worry about our social safety net and let's worry about how we're getting, making sure people are being cushioned from this. And other people might say, no, no, let's focus on you know, incentives for businesses and tax cuts there. And so you can just, you can have differences in opinion on what to do, and that can really slow down any kind of discretionary response where Congress has to act. Congress doesn't necessarily act incredibly quickly. It's not really the the setup of the U.S. political system to do that. It's set up actually to have a bunch of checks and balances so things don't move too fast. I know you've argued now's a good time to think about the response we might have to fight the next recession, um, partly because it's sort of peacetime, right? The economy's doing well. It's really strong. Yeah. But this week has been pretty volatile, right? Um, it's been trade mania. <laughs> um, we're looking to ramp up a multi-front trade war. So do you think now is now the, a good time to do it? Is the economy really strong? I think now is a good time in part because, the, you know, we're not in a recession now. The economy's okay now. But as you mentioned, there are things out there that are making people wonder. You know, Markets are starting to price in that the next move will be a Fed rate cut, not a rate hike. People are starting to realize that at some point, expansions end, and that there are enough things out there, whether it's trade wars or anything else, that could be the bump that sends the economy down a little bit more. And so it does seem like a good time for people to say, hey, you know, how do we want to approach this? There, there's some sort of advantage also from kind of a veil of ignorance. Like you don't know who's going to be in power when the next recession strikes. You don't know who it's going to hurt. And so in some ways, it feels like it's a good time for everyone to say, okay, I don't know if it's going to be me or you who takes the political hit when there's a recession, but neither one of us wants to. So let's just come together now and safeguard the economy and and minimize the damage that people are going to see. Because I think that's kind of one of the real fundamental premises we, we took to the book was recession happen and they're really bad. And policymakers really should take as one of their key charges to minimize the damage that economic downturns impose on people. You mentioned that um, there's talk of Fed rate cuts now. And so that does underlie this idea that the Fed often steps in um, to address a downturn. I know um, some people have talked about central banks being the only game in town but you're looking at fiscal policy measures. So how come you're putting the onus sort of on the government rather than just relying on the Fed? So I think there are two reasons. I think one is that for a long time, many economists have argued fiscal policy is an important secondary tool. Um, There are certainly some people who said, we'll just let the Fed do its job and we don't worry. Um, But I also think the last 10 years have just given us a treasure trove of data and a lot of great analysis that's been done showing just how effective countercyclical fiscal policy can be, especially if uh, you're in a deep downturn. But there's a second, far more practical issue, which is in the last seven recessions in the United States, the Federal Reserve has cut interest rates at least five percentage points during the downturn. Um, I feel really safe betting today they're not going to do it the next downturn because you know we're sitting at 
at whatever 2.4 right now. And if people think this is the peak, that the next move is down, then they don't have five points to cut. And so I think, you know, we're in a world with lower equilibrium interest rates for a while. We're going to hit the zero lower bound or effective lower bound more often. And we need to make sure fiscal policy is ready to step in and help the Fed. And so that's not to say the Fed is powerless once interest rates get to zero. I'm, I am a believer that you know the things the Fed was doing were helpful. Um, but I think even people who took those actions and believe really strongly in the actions the Fed took once interest rates got to zero will just openly say... Things like quantitative easing or forward guidance aren't direct substitutes for rate cuts. They're not quite the same. They're not quite as powerful. And in times when you're faced with using those tools, it would be really helpful to have fiscal policy kind of sharing the load. Yeah, no, and I think the Fed's kind of willing to accept that themselves, given they're doing this huge rethink on their own monetary policy framework to see how they can perform better when they're at the zero lower bound. So I think they would confess that as well. Um, I also wonder, you know, monetary policy really kicks in with lags. So it's this kind of interesting dual thing where, you know, the fiscal policy may take longer to enact, but once you enact it, it may be operating faster. And on the other hand, monetary policy, you can typically you know, you can move faster. You know, the Fed could cut rates 100 basis points tomorrow if it wanted to. And so, you know, it could move really quickly, but then that the impact of that policy might take longer. And so I think um, one of the ideas behind bolstering automatic stabilizers is to say, we want to make sure that we take out some of that political lag. We take out some of the figuring, not just political, but even just figuring out what to do lag. And then there are even, honestly, the things that I think most of us don't even think about until you're actually trying to craft some of these policies, which are things like, you need to figure out how to recode the programs um, that actually cut the checks to increase the checks if you're going to say, let's increase everybody's unemployment insurance payments by a bit. If you made that decision today, you couldn't do it tomorrow. It would take some time administratively. But if you made the decision today that when we have a recession, you want to do it, you could be ready so that once the recession kicks in, you're just doing it automatically. One of the, the big issues of our time is inequality, and the Fed's often blamed for sort of driving inequality with its response to the last crisis. What about automatic stabilizers? Um, do, do they have a mitigating effect on inequality, or are they also contributors? I think it depends on which one and how you do it. And so um, if you're doing things like payroll tax cuts, for example, that's something where money's going to go to everybody. But the more money you're earning, the bigger a tax cut you're getting, things like that. So you could see how it it depends on how you look at it. On the other hand, the social safety net is our most powerful automatic stabilizer. Unemployment insurance and SNAP are probably two of the best automatic stabilizers we have right now. And so those are things where money is going both to individuals and then because of that, to communities that are hurting. And so they really are very well targeted. So one of the things we tried to do in this book was to think about different policies that could fit together, that you could think of these as certain policies are going to hit some types of households, other policies might hit other types of households. And so that you don't want to put kind of all your fiscal stimulus into one program. You'd rather kind of spread it out across a range of programs to make sure you're really touching different communities and different individuals. And I do think it's really important to make sure we both bolster and importantly not 
destroy, in some sense, the social safety net um, aspect of this, because that is one way to really make sure the fiscal automatic stabilizers are pushing back against inequality and really targeting the money where it needs to go. So you've mentioned a couple kinds of automatic fiscal stabilizer, SNAP, the tax system, unemployment insurance, um, and those all kind of adjust based on what's already happening in the economy. Um, What other categories of fiscal stabilizers are automatic stabilizers are there? So there are other things that we, in some sense, have always done on a discretionary basis that we could make automatic, I think, is one way to think of it. So um, in the last two recessions, we've recognized the fact that states' budgets get hit really hard in a recession. They wind up then firing people or cutting back spending. And so you get this kind of really pro-cyclical element from fiscal policy from the states. Um, And so in the last two recessions, we've tried to offset that a little bit by having the federal government pick up a little bit more of the Medicaid costs that states are paying during a recession. Um, That's something that's required an act of Congress both times. It obviously therefore comes in with a bit of a delay. It means states don't know if the money is going to be there or not until finally things get passed. So that we have a proposal from uh, Jason Furman, Matt Fiedler, and Willie Powell in the book that just says, look, we've done this for the last two times. It's a really effective way to try to help states out and keep them from firing teachers, keeping them from firing police officers, and also keeping them from cutting back on their healthcare spending. Uh, at a time when families need it most. Um, And so they design a program to just make that automatic based on what's happening in the economy and happening in the states. So you could think of kind of automatic stabilizers that just ebb and flow, and then maybe other ones that you you need to design triggers for that um, you would say, let's make sure this comes on all at once if we hit a recession. And that proposal using uh, what's called FMAP, the the federal share of Medicaid spending, um, is, I think, one that that shows a lot of promise just because that's it's something we've done before. Congress knows how it works. States know how it works. And it it could really help prevent um, some of the kind of follow on effects we get in a recession when states themselves start cutting back. And just to clarify, states start cutting back. Is that because they've got balanced budget rules or is it because their rainy day funds are so small or do they just not have the room? It's the, it's exactly right. They they have balanced budget rules and their rainy day funds. They can use those for a little while, um, but not long enough. And so, in a really short recession, it may not be that big a problem because you know by the time states are kind of exhausting their rainy day funds, maybe things are picking back up. But especially in a longer recession, and we saw this in the Great Recession. Um, even when the recession is technically over, but the unemployment rate is still really high, that and you know the economy has started to grow again, but the states are just now kind of running out of their their room on on the rainy day fund, and unemployment is high, so their revenues are down, and they then kind of have the second shock to the economy where they start laying off people or they won't hire anyone. Um, and so you really want to try to take that element out. Uh, states were a real drag in 2010, 11, 12 in the U.S. economy on just the business cycle. And you'd, you'd like to not have them do that uh, in the future if you can provide them the right type of support. And does it matter what sparked the downturn? Because it could be a financial crisis. It could be oil prices. So do you need to have some degree of flexibility in terms of addressing the immediate cause? Or, or is it just important enough that you're addressing the symptoms like higher unemployment? That's a great question. I think one of the things we, we've tried to be careful when we talk about the book is to say we're not saying you wouldn't do anything on a discretionary basis. And I think your question really points to that, that the depending on what the recession looks like and what's generating it, you may want to add 
certain types of programs uh, to what's going on in your fiscal policy to, to really kind of address the root cause. Um, but on the other hand, there are just some simple patterns that we see in recessions. And you know, one of those is consumers cut back a lot. Every time there's a recession, people either lose their jobs or worry about losing their jobs, and they spend less. And since consumption is, you know, close to 70% of spending in the economy, when consumers cut back, you know, that's what really pushes us into a deeper downturn. And that's why one of the other proposals in the book is is this proposal by Claudia Sam to just trigger automatic payments to households, just to try to cushion them a little bit. We've done it on a discretionary basis. We did it in 2008. We did it in 2001. Sometimes we label them tax rebates. Sometimes we label them stimulus payments. It doesn't really matter what you call them. It's basically sending checks to people. Um, And when they get that check, we've got lots of good evidence that they spend them. Um, and this is one where just uh, by quirk of administrative capacity, we, we literally can't mail checks to every American on the same day. Um, so in the both the 2001 and 2008 stimulus, they mailed them out in order of uh, the first digit of your social security number. Um, and so you, you actually could see how people behaved because some people were getting money and right away and some people weren't getting it for 10 weeks. And um, what you were able to see was how they responded with their consumption. And it really does help the economy. It does help out, as you say, against the symptom. That, that's not dealing anything about the cause. Um, but what it's saying is when we hit a downturn, people are going to spend less and we'd like to keep them from doing that. We'd like to make sure we can, A, cushion things for them and B, cushion their cutbacks that impact on the economy. And so one of the crucial things, I think, um, in terms of then saying, well, let's make this automatic is, you know, you need to figure out when to cut the checks. Um, And I do think that's one of the really interesting contributions of, of Claudia's proposal is developing this rule of just saying, look, if what we need to know is when the unemployment rate starts rising, that's when you're in trouble. Um, it's not that it's at a high level necessarily, it's when it's rising. And so we can turn around and look, and she kind of did a lot of statistical work that showed it's basically if the three-month moving average of the unemployment rate, so you want to take that to smooth out any weird blips, but if that number is half a point higher than its recent low, then you're in a recession right now. Um, it has already started. And th- this rule works really well. It, it has always called the, re- you know, since 1970, it's always called the recessions accurately, um, pretty quickly, far in advance of things like waiting for GDP to be negative two quarters in a row or things like that. And so it, one of the things we thought was important about this is it shows it's not just that automatic stabilizers are a good idea. You can do them. It is practical to think that we can set these things up. Some of them just ebb and flow with the economy, like unemployment insurance. But we can also develop triggers that would turn on and turn off at the right time. And and I think that's an important thing for, for policymakers to understand is they don't have to do this on the fly every time. We have the data. We know how to work it. We actually can design these things to kind of take some of that burden off them so that they can do what you said, which is, well, maybe they need to do something extra because of what the particular recession looks like. And I have to say this identification of a trigger um, that we could use to really quickly say that we're in a recession, the the SOM rule um, now it's called, uh, seems like a game changer. I mean, you and me accepted, Jay, I think most economists are terrible at forecasting both recessions and recoveries. So it does seem really interesting that we figured out a way 
to figure out really quickly if we're in a recession without waiting for the NBER to come out a year later and identify it <laughs> as a recession. Um, now, you mentioned um, Claudia Sam is focused on unemployment as a trigger. Can you just say a little bit about why unemployment is such a useful uh, indicator for us being in a recession? I think there are a few reasons. Uh, I think on the one hand, it's uh, it's timely. So, you know, it will we get the data very quickly on it. So GDP comes out with a lag. GDP is revised quite a bit. Um, if you're waiting for a signal from GDP, you're going to be waiting for a while. And that's not to say it's a useless statistic or you don't want to focus on it, but it's not going to be the one you use to kind of trigger policy in a timely way. Um, on the other hand, the unemployment rate comes out quickly. It's pretty consistent. It's revised very little, so you can trust that real-time signal. One of the things that I find interesting is people worry a lot about the unemployment rate as a signal of health in the economy. They worry that, well, as the unemployment rate is falling, and you know, say in particular in, in this business cycle, once the unemployment rate got to 5%, there were many people, and frankly, I would agree with them, who said, well, that doesn't mean that the labor market is done healing. Um, lots of people had left the labor market. And so we, we don't want to, we can worry about whether the unemployment rate is a good signal of full employment, but this other direction, the change in the unemployment rate and increase in it is a really just consistently accurate signal that things are spiraling down quickly. And so I think that's why it's such a good trigger. And we're looking for triggers um, to let us know that we're already in a recession. You know, is that what we've identified as the best conditions under which to um, have automatic stabilizers kick in? Are there conditions under which automatic stabilizers are ideal? I think what I would say is it's nice that we have some stabilizers that are smooth, right? This idea that, you know, even as the unemployment rate starts to creep up a little bit, long before you would, say, have a trigger call it that it's a recession, you're automatically going to be doing a little bit more, right? And if any one person loses their job, they quit paying taxes immediately. Uh, so we have some aspects of the system that just are very smooth. And, you know, the, the food stamp or SNAP program, you know, as people's incomes go down or they lose their job, they're just automatically able to switch over and, and get resources via SNAP. Um, so we have some programs that are smooth. But then if we think that there's something different about once a recession starts, the confidence effects, the that we want to try to jolt the economy back, that's, I think, when you would want to try to use some sort of trigger to kind of do something more than just have these smooth stabilizers as well. Now, when I think of fiscal stimulus measures broadly, and as I walk down a street in central Boston and can't get a cell signal, I, I automatically think of if infrastructure spending. And so is there some aspect of automatic stabilizers that can be linked to infrastructure spending? And I know a big criticism of infrastructure spending is always that we don't have any shovel-ready projects, even if we're, we've got the funding to support them. So is there a way to address that as well? I think there is. Um, so Andy Howitt, who's an economist at the New York Fed, wrote a proposal for us. And, and this is something I've been thinking about for a long time. Um, Andy and I actually served together on a National Academy panel that was thinking about how can transportation spending be used as stimulus. And that was very focused on this idea of, you know, can you do it in a discretionary way? Can it be timely enough? Does it help? But it, it really did make a lot of us think, I think, can we do something better than that? And so Andy's proposal builds off a program called BUILD. It used to be the TIGER program, which is something that started in, um, in ARA. And it was a program that basically said, look, states have all these projects they want to do. Um, 
they can apply to the federal government and the federal government will basically pick the best ones. It will look for the ones that have the best cost-benefit ratio, the ones that will be kind of transformative infrastructure, and then the federal government will fund those programs. The nice thing about this is it means the states are already considering doing these things. They've already gotten the permitting. They've already designed things. So they are, in fact, a lot closer to shovel ready than you might think. What Andy's proposal is to say, well, if we have this program going all the time, which we now do, and his suggestion is if you just start, if that program were $2 billion a year, every year, right? And so states are just constantly designing these programs, designing proposals, submitting to the federal government every year. And then it would basically just say, look, if we get a recession, then suddenly you just fund more. You know, you just say, hey, we normally would have funded $2 billion this year, but we're going to fund $10 billion instead. And just to push more money out the door. And again, these are projects that should be ready to go. And these are projects that states want to do. And you're still doing the cost-benefit analysis. It's just really saying, let's try to introduce a little bit of countercyclicality into our infrastructure spending. And there's really no reason we couldn't do that, to just uh, do it more broadly in other programs, possibly. His suggestion is to start this relatively small and see if it seems like it works. And if it works, you could scale it up quite a bit. Is that all public funding or is, is private funding involved as well? Because it might be harder to get private funding in a downturn. Exactly. So this is purely an idea using public funding. It's not kind of a bank setup because of the same worries as you mentioned. You might worry about trying to get private partners in, during the downturn might be harder. It's instead trying to say, look, the firms themselves, the construction firms are usually slack at that moment. So any concern you have about kind of crowding out private activity is usually pretty much not there during a recession. And so if you've got unemployed construction workers or construction firms that are thinking of firing workers because they just don't have enough projects, this is when we want to do more. And then he balances it by saying, then once the economy's doing really well, you just kind of scale back and, and don't do as much for a few years as states kind of rebuild the shelf, in a sense, of projects that they would um, want to see funded during a downturn. The proposals that are in this book that you shepherded um, are all based on things that already exist, right? And I, I presume that was just for political feasibility in terms of actually implementing them. But if you had to start with a blank slate and you could put anything in front of Congress and wave a magic wand and have them accept it, is there anything, any proposals that we haven't talked about that you think are politically difficult but actually might just be really effective? So anything um, that doesn't exist at all that you would push? That's a great question. I mean, you're right. It was it was some combination of political feasibility and, from our view, just wanting to be really rigorously evidence-based to say we can look at things either we're already doing and find ways to do them better, or we can look at things that we always do and make them automatic. And so that was kind of the organizing principle behind the book. But there are a lot of other things uh, out there that I've seen people suggest. I, I'd say the, the one we haven't talked about that is in the book is to use TANF, or uh, Temporary Assistance to Needy Families, as actually a kind of job subsidy when you hit a recession. That is something that was done with some emergency TANF money in ARA. But it, it's something that we don't really do a lot of. And so that's one I think that kind of blurs into this edge of I do think some direct hiring and you know direct provision of jobs, whether it's through a jobs core type thing or whether it's through TANF or whether it's through a broader policy. I think the idea that we just don't have enough labor demand during a downturn and we need to figure out ways to employ people productively either by subsidizing the private sector for people who are hard to employ 
or by figuring out ways to employ people productively. I think that's an important one. Um, but I think there are a lot of things I've seen people mention. So, you know, we're talking about helping states out with their Medicaid costs. You could also see that in every downturn, states cut back their higher education spending um, because it's kind of this fungible thing. Let's just raise the fees and let's let's have less grant money going towards our, our state schools. Um, well, you could kind of have the same program where you could say you have the federal government kind of help out the states on their education budgets during downturns to try to make sure that they don't cut those budgets. You could even, frankly, get more creative and start thinking about things like automatic deferral of student debt payments or things like that um, in downturns just to try to cushion people's budgets a little bit and say, hey, you know, we realize times are tough and one way we can help you out is by letting you just, you know, take a year off from paying your student debt payments. So I think there are a lot of things you could add to this type of program. And I think certainly you're still going to need some discretionary policy almost no matter what. Um, I think also the last thing I would add is depending what you've done with your corporate tax policy, and we kind of stayed away from that because it's so in flux right now um, with, you know, just some reforms went through and then people proposing counter reforms. You, you certainly could imagine things that uh, we, we often have expensing rules or things like that that let firms deduct any investment costs immediately. Um, and I think having, I think there are proposals just to make that standing policy or it often gets put in and then extended. But um, if that weren't standing policy, making that policy during a downturn uh, to try to incentivize firms to invest during downturns and not have them holding back, I think that's one of the other ones that you know isn't in the book that would make sense. Yeah. Okay. So that expensing piece was supposed to encourage investment <laughs> this time around. And do you think that it, maybe it hasn't because it's not permanent? And so that's why you're saying making permanent might actually spark. Well, you know, in theory, the temporary should spur it more, right? Because it should say, hey, you're only getting this tax break if you do the investment in the next two years. So, you know, act now. Um, I think it was more that the downturn was deep enough that, you know, just the capital to output ratios were higher than they'd been. You know, firms didn't feel the need to invest. And then even coming out of it, I think part of it, honestly, was just they had a lot of cheap options in the labor market. So um, it's not like they needed to emphasize productivity uh, because they could just hire more workers without having to pay a lot more. I think eventually once labor markets tighten enough, you should see more on the investment side just because they're going to want to start to economize on labor. So automatic stabilizers seem to be, as a Keynesian economist, they seem to be kind of a no-brainer. It's sort of something everyone should like. The problem, I guess, is maybe how to pay for it. So the implications for a higher deficit and a bigger debt burden are a concern. But are there really any fiscal hawks left? I mean, do we really need to worry about this now, do you think, the, the higher cost of it? I think on the one hand, we try to argue that it's not that much higher of a cost, right? If if we're going to do discretionary policy anyway, just at a later point in time, so you know it's not time to the business cycle as well and all that, then this is just saying, let's do what we were going to do, but do it better. And in that way, it's not really increasing costs substantially. Uh, I think the other reason actually that a fiscal hawk should like something like this is what it's trying to do is say, let's make sure we spend when we should and we don't spend when we shouldn't. Um, and so by having triggers that turn both on and off and making sure that we're doing things time to the business cycle appropriately, um, but not ratcheting up spending permanently, right? It's saying, let's spend more when we need to and then go back to normal. 
I actually in some ways feel like that should be attractive to people who do worry about longer term debt paths because it shouldn't in some sense shift trajectory. It may be a one-off shift up in debt levels um, during a downturn, but it, it shouldn't be kind of permanently ratcheting up your deficit spending because you're going back to a normal time afterwards. Right. And I guess if you can implement these really quickly, then the depths of the recession could be lessened. So um, it's not that they pay for themselves, but that the cost is mitigated somewhat by their effectiveness. That's exactly right. And in Jason Furman and Matt Fiedler and Willie Powell's chapter, they actually did try to do a little bit of kind of a dynamic scoring type of side of this. Um, I think the scoring question, frankly, is a really interesting one because CBO has to would have to score these types of things probabilistically because, you know, if you said, you know, we do this when the unemployment rate rises quickly, well, in the CBO's forecast, the unemployment rate never rises quickly. So... In, technically, it would score at zero, right? But they, you know, they're not stupid. They recognize that. And so they have rules that they would score things probabilistically. But um, I don't think, honestly, anyone's exactly sure how. And a lot of it would, I think, depend on if they view these as things that should be scored dynamically. Because if they do, you're exactly right. If you, if you shorten the downturn, um, then you're helping the budget out um, as well. And so... Um, these things might have bigger sticker prices than the actual effective cost to the government. And you mentioned earlier something we haven't really touched on. And we've talked about how the triggers could be useful in starting the programs. We haven't really talked about how triggers might end them. And I know in the last recession, some governments actually responded with austerity. Um, I'm talking to you, Wolfgang Schäuble, in Germany, um, rather than stimulus. So if we have these automatic triggers to start these programs, how politically realistic is it to expect policymakers to wait until the programs are triggered off to shut them down versus just getting nervous about constantly spiraling debt and, and shutting them down prematurely? You're asking me to stray into the political science side where I, I worry about my expertise more. But um, I guess what I would say is if you look at experience, the things that get turned off are all the discretionary things and they'll never extend the discretionary things or they fight about that. The things that we have that are currently automatic, they don't end, right? So it's not like we shut down unemployment insurance. What we did was we kept fighting over whether we should keep these discretionary extensions of unemployment insurance. Um, similarly, it's not like we messed around with the tax system writ large. We just let the payroll tax cuts expire. So I think there's a real interest politically to stop the discretionary stuff and say, okay, you know, we were doing this, but I we can't spend like this forever. And that's actually one of the refrains you hear, right? We can't spend like this forever. One of the advantages of automatic stabilizers is everybody knows you're not intending to, right? That there are triggers that are going to turn them off. And I think that becomes really important. So I, I'm glad you raised this because I actually think as much as the trigger on is important, it really is the trigger off that's drastically important. And if you look at what we did in the Great Recession, our fiscal response early on wasn't actually that unusual. There are people who think it wasn't big enough, and I think there's a good case to be made there, but it was as big as we typically do given the shock. Where we were really woefully inadequate was in years 2011, 12, 13, that time period where, you know, we just let our expire. We did some additional things, but not as much as, as we probably needed to. We had the states cutting back. So we had all these things 
that were holding back a recovery when the unemployment rate was still at eight or nine percent. And so having things that would have turned off automatically, I think, might have really kept us from pivoting to austerity too quickly. And the refrain, you know, we're not doing this forever, I think matters. But are politicians worried about we are doing this for our tenure in in office before we try to get reelected? In your experience, do you think that that feeds into their minds, um, given how long the last uh, recession lasted? I think it did. And I also think it's one of those things where, you know, you pass what's labeled as a stimulus measure it doesn't stop a recession, right? It All it's trying to do is mitigate the effects of one and, you know, make it not as bad. It's really hard to campaign on a counterfactual, right? Like, you know, it would have been much worse if we hadn't done what we did. You know, that's not really a big selling point politically. And I think that did just make it really hard to come back for more. And I think if you talk to the people who were there in 2008 and nine crafting these things, one of the things I think a lot of people will acknowledge was the mistake was thinking, if this isn't enough, we can go back and get more. And that turned out to be a lot harder than anyone, I think, guessed. Uh, whereas if you have it automatically, what it says is, if this turns out to be a 2001 type of recession, fine. You know, we, we have this little automatic thing kicks in, it's not too big, and then it turns off pretty quickly. If it turns out to be 1982 or 2008, you know, you don't want it shutting off too soon really deep recessions where the unemployment rate spikes to 10%, you don't want to turn around and do austerity right away. And I think having it automatic um, will kind of prevent our worst impulses in terms of suddenly getting worried about the debt when we really should be more focused on the economy and know that we should just trust that we've got the automatic properties built in appropriately. And I know you've been talking to a lot of economists about this stuff. Um, in fact, a lot of them were contributors in your book. Um, I presume you've also been talking to policymakers and legislators about this stuff. And I'm curious kind of what the reception's been. Are legislators thinking ahead to the next recession or are they actually more looking at tinkering with the existing automatic stabilizers or, or undermining them maybe? So I think it's twofold. I think on the one hand, there are people who are interested in this and in part because exactly your point about undermining, that they're very worried that we're undermining our automatic stabilizers. So, you know, I've mentioned SNAP a few times as a, as a terrific automatic stabilizer, what used to be the food stamp program. Um, putting really staunch work requirements into SNAP that have waivers that don't trigger early enough in a recession would basically make it very hard for people to get those payments because they wouldn't be able to get a job because it's a recession. And so, you know, you can really worry that changes to these programs could make them less effective. You've also seen a lot of states cutting back on the weeks of eligibility for unemployment insurance, things like that, where I would worry we're taking what are effective stabilizers today that could be better, and instead we're actually making them worse. So I think there there's clear kind of political action right now of people kind of fighting to maintain what we have in terms of stabilizers. We've certainly gotten a lot of interest and talked to people on the Hill or talked to people more broadly about the need for more automatic stabilizers. I think there's a question of politically, how does it happen? I think you could see smaller changes happen just within the budget process. And there's no reason you couldn't just put into a Department of Transportation funding bill that the the build program is going to spend more if the unemployment rate goes up quickly, right? Like that, that doesn't have to be a big triumphant automatic stabilizer bill. It could just be part of the budget process. So some things could theoretically move. I think people who are more politically skeptical um, have taken an, another view of what we've done here, which is to say that if we had something 
spelled out like this on the shelf in 2008, then when we passed a big stimulus act, we would have put in more automatic triggers, especially to, to deal with the phase out. Um, and it was just really hard to do that on a quick time cycle. There were actually attempts to do it. It just, they couldn't get it through Congress. There was no way to socialize the ideas and kind of convince people that this made sense. So by talking about this now and starting the conversation and, and having the conversation, it may be that during the next downturn, when Congress does decide to do something, maybe they do put in a bunch of automatic triggers that will both make sure things trigger off at the right time and will then be there kind of down the road in, in the next downturn. So if no one will pass anything before a downturn, maybe at least we've we've made it easier to do good policy in the next downturn. So if we can't get this done in time for the next recession, we can maybe tack these ideas onto the firefighting measures that end up adopted so that for the next recession after this one, <laughs> they can kick in. Is that the idea? Yeah. And I will say the only other way I could see it happening is um, if we don't have a recession in the next, say, 18 months, um, and either party has kind of clear control politically in both the presidency and the Congress, if we haven't had a recession by January of 2021, I would lay pretty good odds that we'll have one in that president's term. And they would be smart to pass some measures that would cushion the recession because it'll happen on their watch. So if nothing's happened by then, you could see a move of people saying, you know what, this is just politically smart to help ourselves out and, and buy some insurance. Jay, I could talk to you about this forever. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me on and for talking about this. I think it's, it's really important stuff, and I really enjoyed the conversation. Alpha Chat is produced by Dan Richards at the Rhodes Center for International Economics and Finance at Brown University and Amy Keane from the Financial Times. Please email us at alphachat at ft.com for any reason at all. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com.